ask if you would, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read it, but just let's stand uh, as we come before God's Word today. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks to him and let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning and we ask that you would strengthen us, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Lord, we need your work in this word, um, through it by your spirit so that we may know your truth. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word clearly. Lord, touch hearts and souls work for your glory this morning and for our good and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 1979, there was a flight that left New Zealand for Antarctica with 257 people on board. It was a sightseeing flight. Uh, it was piloted by a very experienced crew, though one that had never made that flight path before. They had never done that. And Unknown to the pilots, there was a two-degree error put in their flight computer. Uh, so when they got to what they thought was their destination, they descended to a lower level to give everyone uh, a good view of uh, the, uh, the glaciers and everything else in Antarctica. But unbeknownst to them, that two-degree error put them off by 28 miles and actually in the path of 12,000-foot Mount Erebus. And sadly, because of that two-degree error, that plane crashed into the side of the mountain, and everyone, unfortunately, was killed. This tragedy was brought on by a few-degree mistake. Even being off just a single degree can make a difference. If you were off a single degree after a foot, you'd be off two-tenths of an inch. It doesn't sound like much. After 100 yards, though, you're off by 5.2 feet. After a mile, you're off by 92.2 feet. And if you were traveling, say, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you'd be off by six miles. The farther you go, the longer you continue off course without course correction, the farther you are from where you had initially set out to reach. Now, that was a mistake that happened in that flight, but it doesn't always have to be a mistake. There is simply natural drift in our lives as well. 
If you think about it, a boat heading out to a destination has, uh, has to course correct because of current and everything else, as does a plane because of the, the jet stream and other factors that exert influence. So we need course corrections, and fairly often we need them. However, I would say we need them not primarily in our travel adventures, but actually in our lives. We can too easily drift from what is of most importance in our lives. We can get caught up in other things, even family activities, or maybe worse, binging Netflix, or social media, or the news, or work, just the idea of success, host of other things. So much in this world and in our life exerts influence in our lives to pull us away and, 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 and push us off course human nature. And the Apostle Paul knew about that nature very well. He surely saw it in his own life over time, and definitely in the lives of the believers in Corinth. The simple fact is there is need to be reminded of what is good and right and true. You see, we are perpetually veering off course, either, as I said, due to drift or, either, or being pulled. We all need reminded of what is of first importance. This is what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15. He tells us what is that thing that is of primary importance. He, we, we see his concern. That's the, the first thing we're going to see. We're going to see the concern of Paul, and then we're going to see the core of the message that he proclaimed. It's the message of the gospel. So if you look at verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now you see him begin with this motive of reminding them. There's, there's at least with this a, 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 slight, um, a slight feel of rebuke. There's some correction here. Um, there, there's a, a few places where Paul uses that same phrase that, that's translated, um, I remind you. And in those instances, he's communicating that he, he wants them to understand. He wants them to know something. So the general idea here is that Paul, he doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to forget and move off course. He wants them to keep this gospel close. He, he wants them, when you take this fuller context and view of the rest of the chapter, to appreciate to really every fiber of their being the very depths of the love of God shown for them in the gospel. In, in many ways, he wants them not to forget the resurrection. Okay? This, is, this is what you do when you care for somebody. You remind them. You help them course correct when needed. And so that is his subject that he's reminding them of. The gospel I preach to you. Now one way you could put that is the good news. The, the good news that um, it's really the same, almost the same word in Greek, same root. You could say the good news that I good news to you, that I, that I brought to you, that I heralded, that I proclaimed to you. It's a message that proclaims and heralds that news. Think of the words of the angel in Luke 2.10. He came to the shepherds, and what does he say? Fear not, for I be, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That news was news about Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message of God's saving work in Christ. And Paul reminds them that they received that message. 
They received it. They heard it from him, and they took hold of it. That, that language of receiving is important, isn't it? Because one thing that it tells us is the message didn't originate with them. It didn't originate with the Corinthians. It didn't originate with those who received it. And, and therefore, in many ways, they don't have authority to change it. Like, you have, one op- you, you have a few options when, when a message is told to you. You can either accept it or you can reject it. You don't have the opportunity. You are not given that authority to change the message. So they're told, here, you believe it or you reject it. Acts 2, Peter preached on Pentecost, and we read this that happened at the end of his message. It says in 2.37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They hear the message of the gospel and they want to know, what do, what do we do from this? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. Repent. This promise is for you and your children. It's for your household. Repent. That is the proper response. That is the proper way to receive this gospel. Believe and you will be saved. Jesus proclaimed the same thing when he began his his very ministry in Mark 1. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Receiving the gospel involves repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Turning from our self-directed and, dare I say, off-course lives our self-directed and off-course lives of sin and rebellion and, 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 and turning to Him and falling on the mercy of God in Christ. Now, along with that, Him saying that they received it, He also says, He reminds His readers that it's the gospel in which they stand. This gospel in which you stand. See, we stand in that. Meaning that is our hope and our security Our security rests in it. The believer takes their stand on the gospel. It is their, in in some ways, it's their source of stability. And in a a major storm, you take a stand in a place that is stable and firm. So he's saying, you stand in the gospel. You see, they welcomed the gospel when they heard it, when it was preached. And Paul is encouraging them and reminding them that they still stand in that same gospel that they once welcomed. It was not just their hope then, it remains their hope now and for eternity, for the resurrection from the dead. See, because sadly there were some in the church that had abandoned belief in the resurrection. If you look at verses 12 through 19 in 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul wrote. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
see, Paul points out there the centrality of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, none of us will be. None of us will be. And, and we, honestly, we're all nuts to be here. We're crazy. It's a beautiful day. Go outside. Go have fun. But if Christ has been raised, then this is the very place we ought to be. And it changes everything about our lives. Our faith stands upon the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and I know to some in our world, that, that claim that Christ raised from the dead sounds foolish. But there's an empty tomb. And I'll stand on that fact. I'll stand on that truth. And on more than that, as you see this is so much throughout Scripture and in the lives of people, you see the evidence of the resurrection. Yet not only do we stand in this, but Paul writes, he says, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now in context, that, that word, uh, that phrase in vain, you, you could, it could mean either without careful thought or kind of haphazard, no, no due consideration, or it could mean without evidence. Uh, you, you, you take it flippantly without uh, having any sure grounding. And so if Christ has not been raised, then you have believed in vain. You have. You have nothing to stand in if Christ has not been raised. He's going to address that more shortly with the, the, the facts behind this gospel. But Paul says, you are being saved. You, you are saved. You will be saved. Hold fast to the truth of the resurrection. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Take this gospel that you've received and believed and apply it to your life every day. God is at work. His desire for us is to, to run the course faithfully and on course. You know, and when we get off course, to, to have that course correction, but to run it faithfully, to hold fast to him. And in this, Paul's not expressing doubt in his readers. He's saying, if you hold fast. He's not, he's not really expressing doubt, but actually, it's a way of expressing confidence. They will hold fast because the resurrection is true. Paul is reminding them of truth and simply providing that loving course correction that they need. He doesn't want them, and he has confidence that they won't. He doesn't want them, therefore, to drift. To drift to the point of denying the resurrection. And next, he'll move to lay out the core message of the gospel, which is that proof in many ways that our faith is not vain. We don't have a, a vain, a, 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 an undue, a without evidence faith. So look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Paul restates here that he was faithful to deliver the gospel message. He delivered something that was authoritative. It was sacred tradition. What he writes here has, has in, in a way, a creedal tone to it. it. It sounds like an early Christian creed. It's not his message. It's the gospel that has been faithfully proclaimed, and it is a message that he himself received, that he himself has experienced the, the uh, transformative power of that gospel in his life. If we had the time, we'd, we'd, we'd flip to Acts 9 and see Paul's conversion, dramatic conversion, but he recounts some of it in Galatians 1. 
He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But now he's walking as an apostle. He's, he's, he's living the life where, where he's actually taking that persecution that he once gave because he's convinced of the message of the gospel. He's convinced of the resurrection from the dead. This gospel changed his life. This gospel corrected his course. He was dead set. He knew what he was going to do. But the gospel changed his course. Paul recognized the value. He recognized the truth and saw it for what it was. That's why he writes here, I delivered to you as of first importance. Folks, this is not just something that's, you know, nice. Tr- this, this is not something that's just going to get you, you know, over the top in, in a double jeopardy question or something like that, or, you know, good for trivia night. Okay, this is not just something that's good to know, just some random fact or information. This is life changing. This is first importance. This is the most important message that could ever be passed on. It is absolutely central. There's really nothing more central than this. So what is the central truth? The remaining part of verse 3 and 4 have a beautiful flow. You can see it, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That, that's what has that creedal flow to it, that the early Christians likely confessed that to one another and with one another. But Christ died for our sins. There was a purpose to His death, a reason behind it. It was purposeful, even though on the outside it may well have appeared very senseless and wrong. His death was for our sins, for our sins. It was an atoning death. It dealt with sin. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, died for, in place of. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 For he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ, the one who knew no sin, to take sin on the cross for us, so that in him, in his death and resurrection, we could become the righteousness of God. We have that placed on us as we are in union with Christ, as we've repented and believed. It was a death that made a difference. There was no senselessness to his death. Christ took our curse upon him in order that he might redeem us. We've rebelled consistently against the sovereign Lord, the creator God, but the crucifixion of Christ, the one who is truly God and truly man, is the means of our being forgiven, the righteous for the unrighteous. And Paul says this all was in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. Peter, again, in his sermon on Pentecost, said these words, Uh, in chapter 2, verse 22 of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This was not an afterthought. 
This was not plan B. This was set forth by God from before the foundation of the world to redeem his children. Jesus also made it clear that it was according to the scriptures in Luke 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But not only does that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, tell us that it, it was prophesied, it was, it was laid forth, but it also, there, there's an application for us that it says the events of what we see are interpreted best through the Scriptures. To get the full meaning of, of what happened in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we go to the Scriptures. For example, our assurance of pardon earlier in the service, Isaiah 53, I'll read it again. And all, the entirety of Isaiah 53 we could look at, but verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It opens up and, and helps us to see the, more of the fullness of what Christ did on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities were laid upon him. But then Paul also says that he was buried. He truly died. There was no faking Jesus' death. He was, he was dead, dead, okay? The, the, the Roman soldiers... They were professionals at killing people. When they go to check somebody to see if they're dead and they say they're dead, guess what? They're dead. Okay, he didn't fake it. He didn't pass out on the cross and just from the, the cool of the tomb, get up, move a stone out of the way, get by a whole host of soldiers. He was actually dead. Okay, he was dead. But then it says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He was dead, but he didn't stay in the grave. He was raised. Death had no power over him. Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There was and there is an empty tomb. This was the work of God. God raised him from the dead. And further, when you think, uh, one commentator wrote this, he said, the phrase on the third day alludes to the discovery of the empty tomb and recalls Hosea 6.2, which predicts God raising Israel from the dead. He will raise us up on the third day. The Old Testament explicitly and implicitly expected Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, so both very clearly and even a bit veiled, Adam and Israel's failure to subdue their enemies and spread God's glory to the ends of the earth anticipates Christ's obedience, victory, climaxing in his death and resurrection. Everything in the Old Testament points to what Christ did. All of it. Jesus was resurrected. Paul tells us that clearly, and he gives us supporting evidence in this, doesn't he? Look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why put so much emphasis on these appearances? Why not just leave it at the the creedal part? Because he tells us here, he says, first he he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, the the leader of the church in many respects. Then he appeared to the twelve, the apostles. And on a side note, um, I think this is still part of a creedal aspect in in many ways because Paul didn't use the phrase the twelve outside of this to refer to the disciples. This is the only time he does. And so it, it, it kind of lends itself to, this is still something that the church rehearsed. Yet further, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. So in many ways, he's saying to the original readers, if you don't believe, go knock on their doors. They saw it. They saw him. And then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And Jesus was not merely seen by some random person, but by all these people. And he was not just seen, he was touched and he was heard. It was not just an apparition. This was not a mirage or a hologram. This was not early virtual reality or a deep fake. Okay, it was none of that. This was not some group hallucination. That's not how hallucinations work anyways, okay? You don't all hallucinate the same exact thing. Besides the fact that the resurrection wasn't really that much on their mind, they didn't understand what was going on at this point in time. The resurrection changed it and helped them interpret everything. In in Luke, when the women returned from the empty tomb, the disciples didn't go, I knew it! I knew it was going to happen! No, they turned and said, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They basically said, you women are batty. You're crazy. They're not going to have a group hallucination, 500 and more, that Jesus raised from the dead when they thought they were nuts. It took them going to the tomb. It took them seeing the resurrected Christ. They saw him, and those encounters changed everything. Changed Paul's life completely. Look at verse 8. It says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul was humbled by the Lord. Utterly humbled. The language expresses a a feeling almost of, of inferiority in many ways. And we see that if we continue verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." So he said, Paul had been a vile persecutor of the church. He knows full well that the Lord changed him. He came face to face with the truth of the gospel. God's spirit worked within him. And he's a different person. The grace of God, the extraordinary grace of God in a resurrected Savior transformed his life. Completely. 
utterly, to its very core. And one thing I think that this shows us is that we should never doubt the transforming power of the grace of God. Not only in conversion, okay? Not only in conversion and, and seeing God change us from who we are to who to who we were, to who we can become and who we are in Christ. But throughout all of life, even once we come to Christ and we repent and believe, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in the lives of believers. If God can raise Christ from the dead... Can he transform our struggles, our pains, our hurts, our fears? Yes. There's nothing outside of the transformative power of the gospel. God works in the life of every believer, and he will never abandon or forsake them. That's a truth we need to believe and hold tightly to. But it is all too easy to drift away from that truth. To forget to course correct. It's too easy to not be reminded of the gospel. We continually forget it. Day by day, we forget it. We, we veer away from it, from what's of first importance We need reminded, you and I, of the hope of the gospel, of the hope of the resurrection. One commentator said this, he said, the resurrection is the keystone that integrates the incarnation and Christ's atoning death. If it is removed, the whole gospel will collapse. If there's no resurrection of the dead, humans remain under the tyranny of sin and death, and their bouts of doubt and despair are fully justified. On the flip side, he's saying, with the transformative power of the gospel, he can deal with our doubts and our despair. They're still gonna, they, they may still well be there at times, but he can deal with it. Christ was raised, and because of that, everything changes. We can face the day-to-day. We can face the normal routine of life, and we can face the difficult and the painful, the massive struggles, because Christ was raised from the dead, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If God would do this for us, do this to deal with our sin, would go to these links, how could we not have hope that he will continue to work in the day in and the day in out. Let's be faithful and hear the gospel, the course correction, and turn to him and run that course of life that he has set for us, believing and trusting in our resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for all that you've given us. We thank you that the resurrection really does 
change everything, change everything about everything. And so, Father, direct us and guide our hearts. Course correct us where we need it. Direct us more and more unto the truth of the gospel. They really can change everything about everything in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.